0: Good morning, church. Uh, Yes, well, we are back in the book of Revelation. And uh, I don't know about you all, but as we go through these letters, um, I can't help but imagine what it would have been like to be one of these seven churches and receive a personal letter from the very much alive, resurrected Jesus I mean, if I were an elder or a member of this church in Pergamum or any of these seven, no matter what the message was, if there was one word to describe what I know that letter would do for me, it's that it would be sobering, wouldn't it? Getting a direct letter, a direct word of assessment from the king of kings would be sobering. We all know what it feels like to be assessed for something, like getting your grades in for school or a performance review at work. Um, These are moments of sobering realization. But this isn't your secondary school principal or your boss at Medtronic. This is the King of Kings. This is Jesus. Now, my prayer for us myself included, is that as we study these, it would be sobering to us as well. Like Jason said last week, this letter isn't written to Galway City Baptist Church, but it is written for Galway City Baptist Church. Meaning, as the Holy Spirit revealed this to John, writing to Pergamum, he knew that we would have this, his living and active word, And that we would be reading it in the summer of 2021 as a local church in Galway, Ireland. And through that, a very much alive today, risen Christ means to speak to us this morning. And for this church in Pergamum, what was true for them is very applicable for us today. And here's where that's headed. I'm going to tell you off the bat. Jesus is going to give us a warning to turn, he's going to give them a warning to turn from their compromise with culture toward a complete commitment to Christ and His kingdom. A warning to turn from their compromise with culture and a complete commitment to Christ and His kingdom. Let's pray again, and then we'll look at His word. Heavenly Father, we uh, we pray so many times before we even start preaching because we, we are declaring to ourselves, we're declaring to each other, we're declaring to you that you are our only hope. We do not lean on our own understanding to know you, to be right before you, to respond to you. We need you. We are your people who need you. So we just pray one last time. God, would you Would you stir in our hearts? Would your spirit move in us? All of us who have ears, would you help us to hear and respond in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 12 of chapter 2, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Stop there. Man, is that, is that how we expect Jesus to talk to his bride? Bearing a sharp sword? I mean, that's not usually how I approach Sarah. broadsword in hand, going to talk to her. Hey, babe. I mean, to Jesus' enemies, sure, but this is a letter to his beloved, isn't it? And talk about sobering. All of these letters in Revelation to these seven churches begin with Jesus introducing himself with specific attributes of himself that then set the stage for what he wants to say to that church. And whenever I first read this, man, it just sounds real threatening to me. It doesn't help that when he starts the next verse, it goes, I know where you dwell, which again just sounds like a threat to me. Jesus with a double-edged sword saying, I know where you live. Is that what he's saying? Well, it's not meant to be a threat in and of itself. But for it to make sense, we need to understand some more about the city and the cultural context of Pergamum. See, Pergamum was a a massively influential city in the Roman Empire, intellectually, religiously, and politically. It was the intellectual hub for the region, right up there with Athens and Alexandria. It housed a library that held over 200,000 volumes, absolutely massive for its time. It also became the leading religious center for all of Asia. There were altars and temples all over the city dedicated to Athena, Dionysus, Asclepius. And looking over the whole city stood atop a high terrace. On top of the mountain that the city was built on was a 40-foot altar to Zeus, It was a mecca for all kinds of pagan religious activity but none more than for Rome itself. See, Pergamum was the absolute center for religious cults of imperial worship. It was the first city to allow allow a temple of worship to be erected to a living ruler. (laughs) Hear that. When Augustus allowed one to be built for himself and worshipped as a living God. The city of Pergamum was labeled Warden of Imperial Worship. And this, more than anything else, is what made it the leading city in the province. And I would say this, more than anything else, is what made Jesus say, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Can you imagine that? Written on the welcome sign coming into Pergamum. Welcome to Pergamum, home of Satan's throne. But this can be the difficult thing about living in the culture, in a fallen world for Christians. Because often what the truth is, and what God sees and knows to be demonic power and influence, the world and culture celebrate as progress and victory. See, the Roman Empire, for those who belonged to it and benefited from it, was mankind's hope for the new world. With the advance of the Roman Empire came civilization, culture, economic success, peace, stability, order in an otherwise chaotic world. And for that, its leaders were worshipped. And how did they keep this order? By the Roman sword. They kept it by militarily conquering anyone who rose against it. And to all who questioned it or suggested a contrary way of life, they were met with the threat of the sword. Justice by the Roman sword. And this was at its peak in Pergamum, where Rome was politics and religion. And this church was right in the middle of it. As Osborne from the NIV commentary put it, Christians, due to their rejection of the Roman gods, were called atheists, but they were also accused of hatred of the human race because they refused to show political loyalty to the emperor and thus to the Roman people. So in a place like Pergamum at this time, to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus was to live in opposition to Rome and thereby in opposition to what culture said was the progress of humanity. Do you see that? So think with me now, what might Jesus be saying when he describes himself as him who has the sharp two-edged sword? Jesus is firmly reminding his people that are living under the shadow of the mighty Roman sword, that it is Jesus who bears the true sword. For his people steeped in a culture that says Rome is the keeper of peace, and the final word of judgment... Jesus boldly reminds them that true and final judgment belongs to Jesus alone. True and final assessment lies with Jesus. This image of the two-edged sword is is pulled from the previous chapter in Revelation, where John sees the risen Christ, where from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, alluding that judgment comes by God's word. This sword is God's word. We think of Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, don't buy into what this culture is selling you. I alone hold final judgment. All will one day come before me, including Augustus and the Romans, and including all of you in this church, and all will be naked and exposed to the eyes of King Jesus. Now listen. To God's beloved in this church, to those who truly belong to him and who remained faithful, he means this as comfort. I know where you live, he says. I know how hard it is for you, beloved. I know exactly what you're up against. Be reminded, beloved, Rome Rome is nothing. This idolatrous culture is nothing. These false gods are nothing. I'm the judge, and I see you. Your culture belittles you, but I see your works. You live where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. This is Jesus' encouragement to this church. You've stayed committed to me and my kingdom. You've stayed committed in a very difficult place, at a very difficult time. And so, with one edge of the sword, he comforts his people. But it's a double edged sword. It's a double edged sword because, with the same blade, one edge is used to save and one edge is used to wound. For some this sword wielding Jesus is a comfort, and for others it's a grave warning. Verse fourteen But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. There are some among you," says Jesus, "that hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam, as we read about in the book of Numbers, was a seer for hire, um, a freelance prophet, if you will, that the king of Moab tried to hire to speak a prophetic curse over Israel. But Balaam, kinded to his short-lived credit, more so because God made him, refused to speak a curse over Israel. Instead, what Balaam did was he found a compromise. While he couldn't prophesy directly against Israel, he suggested to the king of Moab a much more deadly way to curse Israel. The real way to attack God's people was to compromise God's people. If you only entice them to intermarry with the unbelieving nations, which was against God's command and into sexual immorality with them, they will eventually worship the false gods of those nations. And then God's curse will come on them naturally. Okay, so please follow along with me here, church. Just like Balaam of the Old Testament, there were some in this Pergamum church that weren't preaching an explicitly false gospel. It wasn't super apparent heresy, okay? What they were teaching was that it was okay to make some small compromises with the culture around them, that it was okay to be a committed Christian, but just make some adaptations with the world around them. In this context, namely, what's mentioned is is it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, and it was okay to practice sexual morality. Now, there's more going on here that, that meets the eye. This isn't just a simple do-don't-do thing, right? Like God said, don't do these things, but you're doing them, so stop doing them. In a place like Pergamum at this time, to succeed economically, to get anywhere in this city, would almost always require some connection with the pagan religion of the city. All right, so... Whether that be Rome itself or to whatever god is over your trade, since we're in Galway, let's just say the medical field, for example. Euskipius <clears throat> was a god of healing. And for you to find a job in medicine, okay, you would need to be a part of that particular guild. And part of membership to this guild was making contributions, sacrifices to this god. And these guilds would hold celebrations to the God of healing, feasts where they would eat uh, meat sacrificed to this God, and partake in sexual acts devoted to this God. And adding weight on top of this, culturally in the ancient Near East, to sit down and eat with someone was an incredibly intimate act. It was usually reserved for family and close friends because to sit and eat with somebody Was to announce a level of intimate union with them. That's why it was so scandalous when Jesus sat and ate with tax collectors and sinners. But for these Christians in Pergamum, they aren't sitting with sinners to love them for the purpose of mission. They are partaking in these acts because they have bought in to the false beliefs of this culture they have united themselves with, they have bought in with this exchange with the world. If I give you this, then I get this in return. Yeah, I'm I'm a Christian and I trust God to take care of me, but I mean, come on, it's AD 95. Get with the modern times, right? God wants me to be happy and live a full life, doesn't he? The way to do that here is to play the game. I mean, he doesn't really care about this stuff, does he? I still go to church. I'm still a Christian. It's important I don't lose you guys here, so refocus if you have to. And you may be thinking, well, good news, I'm in the medical field here in Galway, and uh, I'm here to say there are no more pagan sacrifices. And, if you haven't noticed, Caesar isn't on the throne anymore. You're right but it's the same spirit at work today, isn't it? In Pergamum eighty, ninety-five, the glory of Rome was the hope for humanity. It was the, the progress of mankind by the power of Rome for the glory of Rome. So you either get with it or be labeled a hater of the human race. And what's the spirit at work today? Is it really any different? It's 2021, church. Humanity has progressed, and you better get with it. Get on the right side of history. Put down that old book that you're clinging to, or be labeled a hater of the human race. And this isn't new. Ever since the Tower of Babel, this is the world's pursuit to make a name for ourselves. Amen. And as for these false gods we serve, the Bible teaches that, man, false gods are really anything that we look to for hope, things that we serve, things that we devote ourselves to do, or devote ourselves to that aren't the one and true God. And there are all kinds of ways that for us to, to really succeed in this culture, so we think, we are tempted to serve at these altars ourselves. All right, so within whatever culture or cultures you belong to, there will always be messages of promise offered that are contrary to the kingdom. This is life in a broken world for Christians. And because we're still sinners, our flesh is still tempted, it's still pulled by the constant calling of the world around us. And because we're called to remain in and live in this world, This is the air we breathe every day. It's the cultural and spiritual air we breathe just by living everyday life here. And the more we breathe it in, the more we hear the messages, the more normal it starts to sound. And if you do nothing to fight against it over time, you start to make little compromises. Little compromises to your commitment to Christ and to his kingdom little compromises that over time produce huge deadly results and lifeless churches would you take a minute and just and just think with me what some of those cultural messages in our context would be what spiritual air do we breathe every day just by living here and just quickly when i say culture i mean i'm talking about the specific ways that culture runs contrary to the kingdom of God. Worldliness within culture, not, not culture itself. Okay, let's, let's just list a couple. How about the cultural religiosity that exists here? To be culturally class, uh, Catholic or nominally Christian, to be Christian in name only. I call myself some sort of Christian or Catholic by name because, well, the rest of my family does. It seems like the normal thing to do in the culture. But the way I live my life has nothing to do with Jesus or living for his kingdom. I mean, to to truly be living your life for Jesus, to be passionate about Jesus, is kind of crazy. That's what fools do. You can believe in God, just, just don't be nuts about it. Isn't that the spiritual air here? That looks nothing, nothing like a saving relationship with Jesus that this talks about. Listen, that that has an effect on us. It just does. And it especially has deadly effects on churches. Or another is, is that your identity is how you feel or what you desire. I feel and I desire, therefore I am. And it's wrong to deny what you desire, especially if you suggest to somebody else that those feelings might be leading them astray. Right? And that affects how we think. And you can see, we can, you can see churches shrinking back in their theology because of this. Or hey, really low-hanging fruit, sexual immorality. Casual sex. Sex before marriage is just assumed culturally now. Pornography seems nearly escapable, and the celebration of sexual morality is nearly mandated. And again, when that's the cultural error, our tendency is then to lower our bar along with it and compromise what God has called his church to. And over time, our views on these things start to look drastically different from the Bible. And man, one of the biggest ones at work in the Western world, there seems to be an 11th commandment written about this. And no matter what, do not offend anyone ever. If you do, you will be labeled a bigot. There is no place for or value in truth. Culturally, we rarely prioritize truth in a matter and because that's the air I breathe, I will, I will find myself, in my confession, I will find myself more hesitant to speak the, God, the gospel boldly to somebody. Because there's just this voice in the back of my head that's saying, don't offend somebody. Don't offend somebody. And so we end up with churches that remove all possible offenses from their services. But the thing is, the gospel is inherently offensive. Offensive. It is. The cross calls out our sin. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. He said that because his words were offensive. (laughs) He offended people. Man, and there are loads of others we just don't have time for, and loads of smaller cultural ones that man, we still need to be aware of, aware of how they shape us, Um, Like all the different messages we get by using social media every day. Or the hesitancy um, here in Ireland towards um, sharing the deep and true things of your heart, right? Just kind of keep it surface level, talk about the weather. And these may seem like small things, but, but when we let cultural norms be our guide for what's true, even the small things will lead to compromises, to our commitment to Christ and his kingdom. Please, please listen, church. The greatest threat to Galway City Baptist Church is not some outside force. The greatest threat to deteriorate Galway City Baptist Church is you, and it's me. What Balaam knew and what your spiritual enemy knows today is that if you can compromise God's people you will eventually destroy God's people and the church. Compromise is deadly. Compromise, though it starts small, proves huge and deadly in the end. This isn't just about your individual faith. God sees us as a community of believers, a church. The invitation to repent here that we see, it's actually not for these worldly Christians, for these followers of Balaam, it's for the rest of the church that aren't saying anything about it, which again, we have a culturally influenced tendency to not want to offend people, and so we remain quiet when God calls us to lovingly confront. All right, so what what do we do about that? What do we do about the constant wash of the world over us, about the never-ending pull of of our flesh towards the call of the world around us? Do we just plug up our ears? Or Or does God want us to be separatists, and we can form our own little Christian community out in the Connemara, right? Well, no, he doesn't want that, because as reborn followers of Jesus, we have a mission we've been given to make disciples in the world. To be in the world, but not of the world. The Pergamum church lives where Satan, uh, Satan's throne is. And notice he doesn't say, get out of there. No, he, he wants them there. It pleases him that they're there. Listen, we can't stop ourselves from breathing the air of the world around us. So how do we fight it? And we fight it with this. A sharp, double-edged sword. This is the weapon that we're given. God's word, the truth. We have to check everything that our culture tells us against this. This is our standard. And we, When we aren't consuming this book regularly, breathing this air in regularly, God's kingdom, listen, God's kingdom will seem more and more strange. And the way of the world will seem to make more and more sense to you. If we lose focus on this as a church, we are done for. If you choose not to engage with God's word seriously as a believer, please listen, your flesh will win out in the end. You will make compromises with the world around you and it will win out. God hasn't made truth a mystery. He hasn't made his judgment a mystery. It's revealed. It's all here. Truth is revealed. God's heart is revealed. His expectations for us are revealed. His promises to you are revealed. The path to know him and to have eternal life with him forever is revealed. And man, if you've been away from this for a while, like please know I get it. I get it. I get it myself. But just hear this. Hear this this morning as God's loving but firm call. Come back to my word and, and hear from me. Come back to my word and hear from me. So, Jesus' stern warning to Pergamum and to us is against making cultural compromises that go against our commitment to Christ and to his kingdom. His encouragement to his church is the opposite it's for complete commitment to Christ and his kingdom, to go all in on the kingdom of God. Who does Jesus hold up as an example within this church? Back in verse 13. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. We don't know a lot about Antipas, but we know he was killed for the faith. Tradition says he was burned alive in a copper pot. It's a tough way to go. And Jesus says, that's my faithful witness. Look to him as example." completely committed to Christ, willing to lay down his own life for the advancement of the kingdom. Now, I doubt anyone is threatening you with death by copper pot, but it doesn't matter. You and I still have a very real spiritual enemy that means harm to us, often in ways that we don't see. And sometimes, still today, commitment to the kingdom still might cost your life. Some of you might be familiar with a story um, of why we first uh, started to even think about um, church planning here. Back in 2016, there was a family from the States, the Pals, that were moving to Japan to be missionaries there. They were saying no to the cultural pull of living the American dream, and they said yes to uh, a complete commitment to Christ and his kingdom. They sold all their belongings. They said goodbye to their friends and family and they left. And on the drive to their last training session before flying out to Japan, they were rear ended by a lorry and the whole family of five went to be with Jesus. Now, to the world, they could only see this as tragedy. And indeed, it was tragic. But it was not ultimately a tragedy, but a triumph. In the world's economy, this was death and loss. But in kingdom economy, this was eternal life and boundless gain. They entered God's throne together as faithful witnesses. And they now have their reward. What's even more... Because they surrendered making a name for themselves and instead invested to holding fast the name of Jesus, God ended up making a name for them. The pals' name is held high in the kingdom, and it's been used far more than they could have imagined for the kingdom's advance. See, the pals, they were our friends. We were part of a small church plant with them. And at their funeral, John Piper, in his prayer said, in the name of Jesus and by the blood of these five, God, raise up, raise up a legion of replacements for the global glory of his imperial majesty, Jesus Christ. Forbid that any of your children would hear this news and waste their lives on trifles. Man, that moved us. That moved us, along with others, to say, God, if that's me, I'll go wherever you want. I'm all in. Though it costs our lives, for the pals and for all those who remain committed to Christ and his kingdom, Jesus now gives this promise. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus gives us two images. The first is hidden manna. Man, Think about what manna represented for God's people. Was it not that God will always provide for his people when they completely trust in him? That God would feed his people, nourish his people directly if they submitted to and trusted him. Bread from heaven that ultimately pointed to Jesus. The ultimate bread from heaven that doesn't just feed our bodies but feeds our souls. It's what our souls need to be nourished by. The lie in the Garden of Eden and the lie of the pagan guilds in Pergamum were one and the same. You have to provide for yourself. Jesus promises to all who remain faithful to, committed to the kingdom I will give eternal provision. The promises that we will get the bread of life, Jesus and all of his blessings forever. And the second: a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. White stones were used in a couple different contexts um, in this day. It was common for members of a guild or um, victors to the games to use stones as a ticket of admission. Into feasts. And second, in ancient trials, jurors would cast a white or black stone into an urn to vote for acquittal or guilt in a case. And by using this imagery, Jesus is saying, All those who conquer, I have a ticket of admission for you, one that frees you of all charges and grants you access to God's kingdom forever. And it's not made of cheap temporary paper, but of stone. And on this permanent, secured stone, I already have your name etched in. A new name, known only to me. See, the the lie at the Tower of Babel and, and the lie from Rome was the same. Let us make a name for ourselves. But Jesus says, because you laid down your own name, for the sake of making much of my name, holding fast the name of Jesus, I will provide for you a new name. Man, I love this imagery. I love it because for every one of us, God God already knows your true identity. Our true glorified name that he intended for us when he created us. And I'm sure, like me, you've you've had many names spoken over you. Many things spoken over you. Hurtful things that broken people have spoken over you as your identity. Names that stick with you personally. Ugly. Unlovable. A burden. Weird. Stupid. Weak. A screw-up. Man, whatever, whatever those Names have been. For every one of those, God says, that's not the name I have for you. That's not your identity. I have a new name for you. I've kept it hidden just for you. Protected with me. Your true name. Your true redeemed identity. Lastly, this promise is for all who conquer. Who is that? Is it those who remain perfectly faithful to Jesus and never falter? No. Because God's word says that that's none of us. Our salvation is based on Jesus' righteousness being counted towards us. Jesus' victory is our victory. Jesus was the perfectly faithful one. He was the one who conquered perfectly. He was the one who was completely committed to the kingdom. And the promise is that for all those who have a simple, genuine, saving faith in this Jesus, that victory is yours. And these promises are ours. And so now as he calls us to image him, as we follow him imperfectly, Just remember this. As Christ calls you to hold fast his name till the end, it is like when I command my three-year-old daughter Lucy to hold my hand crossing a busy street. I give her the command to hold tight or hold fast. And my heart delights when she obeys, when I feel her her little grip on my, my pinky, trusting me to guide her safely. But do I entrust her safety to her ability to keep a good grip? No. I love her too much for that. While she holds my pinky as best as she can, I grip her whole hand. I hold her fast. If she trips, it's my grip that secures her, not hers. And so it is with you, beloved. Completely commit to Christ is the command. Hold fast my name, but be comforted this morning. It is your Savior that grabs you, it's He who holds you fast. And that is so secure, it's so sure, that grip is so tight that for true believers in Jesus, He already has your name written. It's done. And if you feel this morning like maybe Jesus is exposing the other edge of the blade to you, like you see your compromises with the world and they feel heavy and you feel his judgment, listen, don't run from him, run to him, run to him. The invitation to complete forgiveness and renewal is here today. And he's the only judge who can grant it. He is willing and he is able. Let's pray. Father God. God, we just we come before you as a church and we just We confess that we have not done this perfectly. We have individually and as a church made compromises with the world around us. And I thank you, God, that that's not a mystery to you. You know where we live, you know our context, you know what we're up against, and you have grace for that. You have grace for your people this morning. Our world is loud. And God, you lived here. You lived here, Jesus. You know this. So I pray you'd have mercy on us. Would you help us as a church? Please, God, show us. Show us the ways that we've just kind of moved along with the culture, away from your standard, away from your holiness, away from what you call us to be as your people. God, align us with your word. Align us with truth. We just confess our need to you, God. Please, help us. And I pray for anyone that just, there's a particular thing on your heart as I've been preaching this morning. God, would you help them with that? Would you help them to surrender that to you? To repent and turn to you now, God. We just, we come wholeheartedly to you, Jesus, knowing that it's not, it's not up to us for our salvation, but we cling to you as the conqueror, as the true victor. We look to the gospel, and so we say, God, give us simple, childlike faith in the one who conquered, in you, Jesus, that that victory would be ours, that we would be safe before you in the true sword. We thank you for your word, God. Um, and I just ask that you would go with us now as we enter into a world that doesn't know you and a culture that doesn't keep with your kingdom. We pray, go with us by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.